So today we're talking about why we sing when we get together. Have you ever thought about why we do this? So we get together on Sunday mornings, and we're not the only church, obviously, that does this. Churches all over the world, of every nation, of every language, they get together and they sing songs. When you Does anybody remember when they first started coming, going to church? Some of you were raised in church, and I mean, from the womb you were in church. But if you maybe weren't saved until a little bit older, and you started first coming to church and hearing songs, it may have been a little unusual. Uh, Nikki told me the story of when she was a teenager and first came to a church and she heard the, the whole congregation singing about the blood of Jesus and she was very confused and thankfully God had given her a friend that she asked and was able to give her answers to those questions. But you know, at, at church we sing because usually the song leader says, Hey, let's stand and sing. You know, the song leader invites us to do this, but I think we really sing because there's already some kind of song in our heart. It's within us already, and I think I can prove it. If you don't believe me, I think I can prove it, that everybody has a song within them. Just go to a baseball game. Seriously, seventh inning, what happens? Everybody stand, at least at Cardinals games, I don't go to too many others, but Cardinals get everybody stands up and everybody does what we sing. They sing together. A whole stadium of 40,000 people are singing. I have even seen total strangers put their arms around one another and sway back and forth and sing, take me out to the ball game, right? We, we sing now. It doesn't always sound great. Um, some people have had too many beverages and really don't sound great at that point we're still talking about the baseball game absolutely uh but i think this has a note of camaraderie to it right when we stand and we sing you know our neighbors usually have the same color shirt for the same team uh think about civil war era the music was used songs were used they were used to uh, identify different regiments. They were used as a morale booster. They were used as a call to arms. Music was used. Singing, I think, connects us together in ways that other things don't. And I think singing connects in us in ways that other things don't. And I believe that God intended it to be this way. Uh, now, I've heard multiple stories, and maybe you actually saw something passed around on Facebook this week. Um, about family members who are getting older who are uh, suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia and family members go and they visit and, and their loved one doesn't recognize them. But when you start singing a hymn, they remember every word. There's actually a video going around. It's really special. Why is that? Why does it happen that way? I heard the story of a guy who, who actually had a stroke and he lost a big part of his memory. And he couldn't remember a lot of what the last few years had, had happened. But their church had written a, a CD of music from the book of Colossians and this man could remember every song. Why does that sort of a thing happen? I, we're going to talk about that today. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're one of the people that says, you know... I'm not really into music. I don't really sing a lot. 
That's not important to me. Well, I want you to know that you don't get a free pass today. You still have to pay attention because I think this, this involves every one of us, no matter how you feel about singing, because I think music and singing connect in us in ways that sometimes we don't even notice. Uh, for instance, when a song from 10 or 15 years ago comes on the radio, does anybody even listen to the radio anymore? I don't know. But when it comes on, what does it do? It just like takes you back to that era in your life, whenever that was, and you, you start to remember things. Uh, I had a job when I was like 17 years old in Winfield. I stocked shelves at the grocery store. I think it's now like a, some custom car shop right there by the four-way stop. But I stocked shelves. I swept floors. Sometimes I, I did the, the cashier thing. But they played over the speakers of that store. They played a certain style of music all the time. Can you guess what it was? All day long, country music. Country music, okay? Uh, I don't despise country music, uh, but I don't like it. I think there's some room there. Uh, but to this day, not that I often hear this song, but when I hear Alan Jackson's song, Little Bitty, you guys know what song that is? Or, or some, whoever sings Watermelon Crawl. Um, <laughs> when I hear these songs, I'm, I'm 17 years old again. I'm sweeping floors. And I mean, I can see my boss's face. I can see my coworkers' faces. I can even like almost smell this store that I used to work in. It's, it is weird. Music connects in us in ways that we don't even realize a lot of times. Singing songs, music, they're, I believe, wrapped up in our humanness, the way that God designed things. This leads us to our first point. Music connects us together in special ways, and it connects within us in special ways. Paul Tripp says this, God hardwired you to sing. There's always some kind of song in your heart. The song in your heart is expressive of what's important and meaningful to you. It's like the soundtrack of your life. The song that rules your heart will set the agenda for your behavior and your relationships. Music does something in us, and it does something to us. You put music on for a little baby, for a toddler. What happens well, sometimes it calms them down, but if it's the right kind of music, they get up and dance, right? Like they start shaking and moving and flipping and twisting and it's just instinctive. Like you don't have to teach a child. Trust me, my children are not seeing me dance at home, but they all do it when music comes on. It's just instinctive. They just do it. I, again, I believe the creator designed it to be this way. And I think this is wrapped up beautifully in C.S. Lewis's book, it's in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The, the Magician's Nephew. I want to read just a second section out of this because he starts in this book, he talks about the origins of Narnia. How many of you guys have read The Magician's Nephew? Okay, some of you will recognize this. So the book's main characters, Diggory and Polly, they're, they're kids, they stumble across this, this world via a London lamppost, right? And there's some people that go with them. 
uh, Diggory's Uncle Andrew, the evil sorceress, which is kind of a long story, um, and then several other kind of tag-alongs. That's, they're not really important to this, but that's kind of the stage. And, and really, they, they less stumbled into another world than, the, than they actually entered into the creation of a world itself. When they first enter, there's just nothing. There's no light. There's no sound. There's nothing. But then they hear a voice begin singing in the distance. Let me read. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise he'd ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. The voice continues to grow in the story, and soon it's joined by other voices, and these are stars that had been strewn across the sky, and he says it this way. He says, they were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. Then a brilliant sun appears and colors all across the land begin to be seen. And then they see the source of the song. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called upon the stars and the sun, a gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. Polly was finding the song more and more interesting because she thought that she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up on a ridge about 100 yards away, she felt like they were connected with a series of deep, prolonged notes which the lion had sung just a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to this, to his song, you heard the things he was making up. And when you looked around you, you saw them. This was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid. Aslan the lion was creating the world with his song. I think it's a beautiful picture of the creation story. Now, I realize the Chronicles of Narnia are not spirit-inspired writings. I get that. But C.S. Lewis, I think, masterfully captures what we're talking about. And what I believe to be true is that singing comes from God. Singing comes from God himself. In fact, in Zephaniah 3.17, it said that the Lord actually sings. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. With loud singing. If singing and music connect within us in special ways, then it had to be designed that way by God himself. And so singing comes from God. And I, I emphasize this because Charles Darwin would like you to believe 
that people sing for the same reason that reasons that birds sing to call a mate or to protect their territory to attract a mate or to ward off rivals. That's what he wrote in his famous book that much of our school system has embraced. But if it's not that, if it's not singing to attract a mate or to protect your territory, other evolutionists will tell you that humans, birds, and actually a few varieties of primates sing due to the evolution of monogamy. One spouse, one partner. Lemurs, Tarsiers, TT monkeys, and gibbons all form monogamous breeding pairs, and amongst birds, duetting, both singing, mainly only occurs in birds that mate for life, like eagles or doves or that sort of a thing. This is what we're being told. This is where singing comes from. Or, even more recently, evolutionists believe and suggest that since human babies can't cling to their parents like primate babies can, as soon as they're born, a, uh, a baby gorilla will grab a hold of its mother's fur and hold on. Well, since human babies can't do that, mothers would have to set their babies down in order to use both hands to do things and would use singing as a way to comfort them. This is how we're being told that singing has progressed and where it comes from. Or we can choose to set the theory of evolution aside Believe the Bible, believe, I would suggest, logic, and see that God created an existence with singers, with people who sing. Singing did not evolve, it came from a creator. And so, we believe that the origin of singing, the origin of music, is God himself. And he intended for us to use it primarily, scripture points to two things that we're going to talk about today. The first thing is edifying one another. The second thing is glorifying God. This is why God has given us music and singing. Edify means to instruct, to lift up, to improve, to build up. And we're going to see how this plays out in two texts today. First one is going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5 along with me. We'll start in verse 15. I want to... To recognize, though, before we read this verse together, people all throughout the Bible sang. Now, I don't know that Adam and Eve are recorded in Scripture to have sung, but Moses did. Moses and his sister, they sang in Exodus 15. God actually gave Moses a song. God wrote a song in the Bible. Did you know that? God wrote a song. It's in Deuteronomy 31. You can look it up. God wrote a song, told Moses to sing it to the people, to teach it to the people so that they would remember it. Deuteronomy 31. Again, all of Israel sings a song together in Numbers 21. Deborah and Barak in Judges 5 sing a song. In 1 Chronicles 16, Asaph and his brothers sing a song. Jason already talked about the book of Psalms. The words sing, singing, sang, song uh, show up over a hundred times. Isaiah told the people of Israel to sing at least 15 times. Jeremiah told them to sing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that he sings. James tells the people who are cheerful. He says, sing a song of praise to God in James chapter 5. Singing is huge in the book of Revelation. You'll see as you read through that. So let that set the stage for where we go in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. 
making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The New Testament talks about, describes singing as a corporate together activity. Right here, we see this. Why? Well, two defining characteristics, and you'll see them played out in this text that we just read. Two defining characteristics of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian is that you're careful how you walk. It says that in verse 15. But also in verse 19, it says that you're going to address one another in song. Why is this? Because I believe singing is an avenue for Christian love and mutual submission. Verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm called to lay down my preferences and my rights in the church out of reverence for Jesus and out of love for you. And you're called to do the same thing. This isn't only in the context of the songs that we think, sing, but I absolutely think it applies here. You, I'll, I'll remind us of Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it. One through four. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look at not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Guys, I think this is played out every week we get together and sing songs. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of other, others. This happens every week when we get together because undoubtedly there are songs in the church that you connect with more than, than other songs. Every one of us has preferences Every one of us has things that we like more than others. I don't think there's anything wrong with that even because so many things factor into this. Our age, the household we grew up in, the area we grew up in, the kind of family we had, where you live now, your giftedness naturally, your occupation that you're in, all of these things play into it. You, guess what? You're allowed to like some songs better than others. I'll just put that out there. You're allowed to like some songs better than others. Where this starts to become a problem, where this starts to generate tension and division is when it starts to overtake things in the church. Our view and our, the way we talk about music in the church. Uh, I'll just say it. I'm concerned when churches have a traditional service of music and a contemporary service of music. What does that automatically build into that congregation? Division, a wall. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it, it, I'm concerned for that. When I, when I started leading music here 16 years ago, I made it clear that wasn't what we were going to do. We weren't going to have a traditional. We weren't going to have a contemporary. 
We weren't going to divide the church in that way. We were going to sing songs together because I think it's important. Musical preference should not be a dividing point in the church. Now, I realize this is often kind of explained away under the title of convenience or having something for everybody or something like that. But in the end, it's just another opportunity for the enemy to get into the church. And we just don't need it. This is something that God has convicted me of. And so when I began leading the music, this is kind of a premise of what we go off of. I think I've got this in your notes, but this is from our website. You can look it up. In our view of music in the church, it says, by using a variety of styles, we hope to encourage multiple generations to lift their hearts and voices together in worship, realizing that everyone is compromising somewhat on their personal preferences for the sake of unity. But the instrumentation and musical style of the music we sing together is not the most important thing. The truth of God's word is paramount, and so we're selective with the songs our body, sing, our body sings on Sunday mornings. There's more there than what I just read, but that's the gist of it. You guys get this. The church is multi-generational. Praise God. Nobody wants a church where it's just everybody their age. That's not what God wants. God's given us people from all ages, of all different ethnic backgrounds, blended together into the body of Christ. This is a purpose of Jesus in saving people. And so I think if the church is multi-generational, our songs should connect with people in multiple generations too. And so just for instance, this morning, we sang, not only did we sing songs from different generations, but we sang songs with varying styles. Did you notice when we sang the doxology, you guys were the instruments. There was no one playing up here. Our voices were the instruments. When we sang some other songs, it was just the keyboard, just the violin. Then we had the full band move in and, and sing, lead some of our songs. We sang It Is Well from hundreds of years ago, and we sang Behold Our God from just a decade ago or so. This is what it looks like to have a church of multi-generational people singing multi-generational songs, and I believe this is the way that it should go. We don't all connect deeply to the same music, and that's okay. Our musical preferences are going to be as diverse as we are. And part, I think, of loving the body to unity is bearing with one another in love. And this applies to the songs that we sing together. Because Paul says, if you look back at our text in Ephesians 5, he says, don't argue about that. Don't, don't argue about music. Don't be foolish don't be filled with the things of this world. Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, what does he say to do? Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with the things of this world. Be filled with the Spirit. And then in fi being filled with the Spirit, what are we going to do? We're going to submit to one another because of Christ. When we're filled with the Spirit, what's going to come out? There are three things that he mentions. I mentioned I just gave you the last one. He said that we're going to address one another in song, we're going to give thanks to God and we're going to submit to one another. This means, I think, that to be filled with the Spirit, I have to constantly be emptying me of myself in order to serve you. And I've got room to improve there, brothers and sisters. I've got room to improve. But do we see what's happening in these verses? 
most of us, I would venture to say, would absolutely agree and say, I want to be filled with the Spirit. We would all, I think, say that. We would all say, I want to be a witness for God in this world. If that's your heart, here's, I think, where we start. Humble yourself before God and before your brothers and sisters. It says, submit to one another. This is hard, you guys. But I want to point one more thing out. The Lord convicted me of this first this week. There's nothing in this text about whether your fellow church member is ever going to be worthy of your submission or not. There's just the instruction to do it. It's the same way if you keep reading in Ephesians 5, Paul starts talking to husbands and wives. It's the same way with husbands and wives. Our obedience to God is never dependent on somebody else's actions. Whether we obey God or not doesn't depend on somebody else's behavior. It's dependent on whether I really trust God or not. All of this, I believe, speaks loudly to the horizontal aspect of why we sing. We're instructed to do it. We're instructed to address one another in this way. Now, in full disclosure, I emphasized, I I led worship here for 15 years. And for a while, I emphasized the vertical aspect of worship so much that I minimized the horizontal aspect of worship. You know, I I was under the impression and believed that when we sang, you could just close your eyes and block everybody else out, and it would be a worship time with you and the Lord. And sometimes it'll be that way. But it's not only ever that way. I, I think in our churches, we should be able to look around while we sing and see our brothers and sisters doing it. Uh, it, it's just, it's one reason why we, we have not and probably won't seek to black out the windows and turn the lights down when we sing. Because we want to see one another. Who are we singing with? It's your brother and sister. It's okay. It's all right. I emphasized the vertical aspect that we almost, I almost lost the horizontal aspect. Now, I don't know that you can put a ratio on it. You can't say 50-50 or 60-40 or anything like that. But it's clear to me, through the years and now especially, it's clear to me that music is not only a means of connecting with and glorifying God, but it absolutely connects us to one another. It brings us together. And Paul, something else to point out in these verses, Paul doesn't just say there's one song to sing or one style to use. Look at what he says. He lists three different kinds, three different styles of music, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Now, there's a lot of research and debate on what those words mean and what they meant to Paul in his day. And what everybody comes up with is simply that there's variety here. And so I genuinely, wholeheartedly believe that texts like this, and he says the exact same thing, in our next text that we're going to look at, the same wording and everything, this leaves room for creativity and music in the church. I really absolutely believe that. When the church gathers, when we come together to worship, there's freedom to use various styles of music. Now, this does not mean that we can just say and sing and do whatever we want 
when we come to church. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, I, I believe that we are given examples of worthy worship in Scripture. And so we should constantly and regularly be evaluating what does our worship at Ramsey Creek look like compared to Scripture, compared to what we know from God's Word. This is a, a th- something that really you're involved with too. As we sing, as you're being led in music, is what we're singing true? Is what we're singing biblical? Is what we're singing building up the body? God intends for music in the church to edify one another, but also to glorify him. And we see this especially in the next text I'll ask you to turn to in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians three twelve through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I didn't realize this when I was studying this week in verse 14. He uses a musical term when he talks about everything being bound together in perfect harmony. I didn't even see that until just reading it now. There are countless threats to the body of Christ, to the unity of the body that Paul talks about before the text that we read. If you just kind of look back in chapter 3, there's a bunch of things that Paul says, don't do these things. Stay away. The wrath of God is coming because of these things. In verse 6 through 9, he talks about this. He knows in verse 13, he knows that there are people in the church that are complaining against each other. It's obvious. But what would it look like? What does it look like to foster a community of forgiveness and love? And he gives an answer to this in verse 16. It's the singing ministry of each member in the church. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do we gather is it, is it for people to see our new outfit? No. Is it to impress other people with how well we can sing? No. Is it to amaze people with our biblical knowledge? No. Is it to remind everybody of how good we are? No. Really, it's the exact opposite of these things. Guys, each week we come together as wounded people to have our spiritual sores healed by the great physician himself. And in his mercy, I believe Paul is teaching us that he uses our songs to apply his healing balm to our souls. God uses our music to one another. Say it this way. Edifying others through our singing is, I believe, in fact, precisely one of the ways that we glorify God. It's one of the ways that we glorify God. It's one of the ways that we exalt his worth 
by singing, we call our brothers and sisters that we're singing with to delight in his beauty, to delight in his faithfulness, to delight in his love. Nikki and I had a friend. He passed away, was it last year or the year before? Last year. His name was Andrew Orff. If you were in worship, if you were in a worship service with him during the singing, two things were bound to happen. Number one, you could hear him no matter where you were in the room, for real. And number two, it was bound to happen, you were going to see Andrew at some point. I don't mean he would like dive off the stage into the crowd or something like that. Um, but he was, he moved when, when we sang. And, and the thing that struck me probably the most of anything of Andrew was when you were singing, he would look you right in the eyes while you're singing. How uncomfortable is that? Right? I mean, he would just, and he would, but he would still be singing the words with passion. And he would just look you right in the eyes and do it. He would, he would belt it out. And it was obvious that the love of Jesus was in him, that it was flowing through him. He didn't do it as a, as a show. But as a result of that, I wanted to sing louder. I wanted to love Jesus more. In Ephesians 5, in Colossians 3, guys, we're told to care for one another in the body. And Paul then gives us, I think, a pretty solid philosophy of music in the church. Look, look back to our text in Colossians 3 in, uh, in verse 15. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And listen here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's supposed to be the content of our lives? What's supposed to be the content of our songs that we sing? The word of Christ. That's what's supposed to dwell in us richly as we sing together, as we walk together. And I'll just say this too. We don't sing our opinions in the church. And brothers and sisters, we don't even always sing our feelings, do we? Sometimes when we gather together, the hardest thing that there is to do is sing praises to God about his faithfulness and his goodness when you don't feel it in your life at the moment. You've all been there. I know you have because I have too. We stand up to sing. The words are on the screen and it's not connecting. What do we do in those moments when we feel alone, when we feel forgotten do we still sing? Do we still praise God for his unending love and do something that goes directly against our feelings? It's hard. One of the hardest things that there is to do when we gather is to sing gospel truths into our hearts even when we don't currently feel them. And that's why we sing together. Because when I don't feel it, I get to watch you sing. 
And we do this as a church because we sing unchangeable truths about Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we sing about. That's the content of our songs. That's why we can sing things that we don't feel. When we come to church and we don't feel like singing a word, it's precisely, that's precisely the moment when we need to be reminded that no matter what's happening in our lives, the one who we're singing to has not changed. Bob Coughlin, uh, he works with Sovereign Grace Music. If you notice, we sing a lot of their songs here. He wrote a book called Worship Matters that was uh, extremely transformational in my understanding of music in the church. But he said this, it struck me. He said, people don't simply need songs that make them feel good. They need songs that feed them. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God has absolutely given us emotions. God has absolutely given us feelings. And I don't believe that they should just be stuffed down when we, when it comes to singing in the church. Being an immovable statue when we sing doesn't necessarily equate to spiritual maturity. But at the same time, being emotionally affected by music and worshiping God aren't always the same thing. Let me illustrate that this way. Bob Coughlin in his book tells this story about how music can be deceptive. He says, a Christian woman was serving God in South Africa and she overheard a group of local Zulu women singing outside of a health clinic. Their harmonies were hauntingly beautiful. With tears in her eyes, she asked a friend if she knew the translation of the words. Her friend said, sure. If you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. That's the song that she heard them singing. That's not a song we're going to sing in worship at church. If you boil the water, you won't get dysentery. You guys have seen those heartbreaker commercials for whatever pet organization. And they play that music and they show these sad, sad animals. You know what I'm talking about? And that just the music, if, I'd like to just take the music out and see what we feel. When we watch those, some of you would still be just as, you know, heartbroken, but the music, just the background music there. I mean, you could put, you could say almost anything you want with that kind of music in the background and people will feel emotionally affected. That's not the criteria for whether we're really worshiping or not. Now it's been, I think, an unfortunate trend in the worship music industry. And just the fact that there's an industry for that is concerning. But uh, there's a trend there to write songs that move away from teaching about Christ and his work and his worth and in writing songs that talk more about our feelings. Here's an interesting, I think, test to do when listening to songs that are supposed to be considered worship music. How many times does this song refer to I or me or my? Now, that kind of phrasing is not all bad. We sing, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior. That's, that's okay. We sing songs like, I know my Redeemer lives. The promises of God were given to us. They were given for us. And guys, Jesus died for sinners like me. Those are all very personal things that we need to understand. But where's the main emphasis of the song? That's the idea. That's what we want to think through. If the purpose, the point of the song is just on our response, 
or on what we do, then I, I, I think it's missed the point, And I think it probably shouldn't be sung in a church. The songs that we sing when we gather together should cause us to glory in the cross of Christ and his work and should remind us of the one true God who we are worshiping. That is the point and purpose of our singing. If music is from God and is to be used to give him glory, then we should sing songs that focus on him, right? That's the real simple way to say everything else I've said this morning. This is why the content of our songs is more important than the musical style, than their speed, than their key that they're in. Content of their songs is is our most important consideration.